What's up guys, this is Tony Angus. Welcome to Chat Time, where I have a conversation with interesting people about the world we live in and the things that matter to us most. Join me each week for a sometimes fun, sometimes controversial, sometimes enlightening, but always enjoyable chat. Today I'm talking with Paul Gretton Watson. Paul has a Bachelor of Applied Science from La Trobe University and is currently undertaking his PhD. He has a Masters of Business Administration, MBA, in International Business from Monash University and a postgrad diploma in Management Studies from Melbourne University's Business School. He's also an accredited mediator, an accredited or certified civil investigator and is trained in a bunch of other things, including conflict coach. Today, Paul and I are talking mainly about high-conflict personalities, and we dig into some other related issues. Without further ado, here's Paul Gretton-Watson. Folks, I'm with uh, Paul Gretton-Watson. Paul, you're the um, Director of Research and Innovation at Converge International. Is that is that an accurate title? Yeah, that's it. And, and of late, and particularly with COVID, I've... I'm looking after marketing and communications as well. So um, there's plenty happening in my work world at the moment. Well, that's absolutely insane because probably each one of those, if you broke them down, research, innovation, marketing, you know, they're all massive topics on their own. Uh, huge portfolios. Yeah, they are. And I think, I think with the um, mental health aspect of COVID and, and also the bushfires not so many months ago, uh, it's really, we've seen in our organisation just a, a very significant dialling up of uh, demand for all sorts of brand new types of product, all sorts of uh, supports for people who are in deep struggle and, uh, and a whole lot of kind of other materials to just help people get through these really unusual and, and disrupted times. So, yeah, it's been a, it's a, been a very gratifying but, but very intense time of uh, my career, certainly. Yeah, very testing time for, for people. And, um, you know, for most of us, one of the, the most sort of, I guess, testing aspects was it com- all of those came out of the blue. Yeah. I don't think anybody expected the fires to start as early as they did or have the volume that they did, the destructive quality. And then, of course, COVID, which was just, uh, which was just a virus that just walked up behind us and smacked us all in the back of the head without us even watching and um, and then uh, dragged us unconscious into our lounge rooms where we've been locked away ever since. Yeah, that's very true, very true. I mean, we started watching the data pretty early um, in our organisation and started looking at uh, the emerging kind of data coming, particularly certainly out of China, but also out of South Korea and some of those very early countries and environments where it was starting to take off Thailand, uh, certainly Singapore, Taiwan. And we were kind of reading the tea leaves pretty early and made some very early decisions about how we would need to uh, pivot the whole business to be able to respond uh, if and when it, it sort of hit Australia, almost as inevitably it would. And so we, we were pretty well prepared and moved pretty early uh, and certainly considerably earlier than some countries did. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting ride. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, perhaps you should have uh, been advising the government. <laughs> Can I go back to what you said? And you said we pivoted the business. What's the, for, first of all, what's the core function of Converge? 
Yeah, so we, we're a very large provider of counselling services to employees or so a private organisation. We, we provide a lot of counselling services under what's uh, referred to as their employee assistance program, or some people know it as the EAP. And many, many organisations have these in place. They vary in structure slightly, but in essence, they are free to staff and usually their family members as well. And it means that if staff or their family are experiencing a particular issue or concern or something that's really creating a burden for them, it enables uh, them to be able to access funded support without having to go to GPs and organise mental health care plans. And, and a lot of the stuff we do isn't, wouldn't necessarily qualify as a mental health burden sufficient to uh, perhaps meet the criteria for a, uh, a care plan in the community as, uh, under the, um, that's funded by the federal government. So it's, it's designed to help people who might be struggling with even leadership kind of challenges with maybe taking on a new role, a new leadership team for managers, uh, through to um, anorexia issues with teenage you know, kids, through to a grief and loss, uh, conflict in the workplace, which is something that we'll probably end up talking about shortly, and all manner of things in between. So um, it is a very important kind of... Uh, psychological infrastructure that organisations increasingly rely on to help their workers. Yeah, very nice. So some of the organisations I work with, they they do exactly that. And, and I guess it's sort of five or six free confidential um, uh, sessions with somebody who's qualified to walk them through some of those issues. And I, and I suppose at, as a result of that, they determine whether that person must or should or it makes sense for them to go and seek further, like you said, uh, treatment elsewhere like, uh, at a care exactly. facility or uh, go to their GP to start with or get some sort of more formal counselling. So I can see it's a, and it's a massive service. Every organisation I work with has a really strong EAP program and, um, you know, EAP, EAP providers. And yeah, so that's brilliant. And so how, when you said you had to pivot the organisation with COVID, it was more around, I guess, people being isolated from each other and not having those social connections and feeling the stress around the virus itself and perhaps even mm. losing, um, I, I know my own uh, stepdaughter's about to have her 21st birthday and had to cancel a huge party. Yeah. Um, so those sorts of things, and, and I suppose people not being able to have their weddings, turn up to funerals, turn up to the, you know, um, to the hospital and, and sit with dying relatives, all of those things must be terribly stressful. Yeah, no, I, they absolutely have been. And I think the thing, so we do a lot of work, obviously, in that counselling space, and we also do a lot of critical incident response. So uh, that's obviously the more acute, intense incident that occurs, and we're there to kind of help teams through that uh, period of deep kind of impact and disruption. But the, the way that we've had to uh, really very quickly re-engineer our product has been making, obviously, as much, if not all of it, as, as possible, virtual. And so we converted our whole training series uh, into a tailored virtual experience through a webinar, a whole range of uh, webinars that we ran um, every day, four days a week, 
uh, with different topics for organisations and gave their staff multiple opportunities to dial into whichever one suited them. They recorded uh, question and answer kind of opportunities at the end. A little bit didactic, not not as anywhere near as um, perhaps as dynamic as a facilitated type of dynamic that perhaps you and I are more familiar with delivering. But nonetheless, met a need because there was so much uh, appetite for information and all of our product, we, we uh, infused a very high proportion of specific knowledge and information and strategies for dealing with things like anticipatory anxiety uh, and all the kinds of things that sort of have arisen out of the bushfires and COVID. And, uh, and that meant that there pretty much hasn't been a product that we haven't reshaped either significantly or totally to reflect that kind of orientation and, and the type of information that people are seeking now. But it was a little bit one way, and it is a little bit one way through a, through a webinar. But uh, nonetheless, um, certainly helped us with that side. On the counselling side, we found that uh, people very quickly ad adapted largely to phone and uh, teleconferencing, uh, whether it be Skype, Teams, Zoom uh, type options. And, and so we've been delivering... Um, the vast majority of the services we provide via one of those medium. Um, live chat's another option that people use sometimes if they prefer yeah. just them to type the type answers quickly and get responses. And so we've got a team that, that just respond through that medium. But mostly it's still phone and Zoom, probably the two big ones. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, I think it speaks to ultimately the resilience, the general resilience that we have, that people can adapt pretty quickly to these new these new modes of sort of receiving information and getting counselling and to go, well, you know what, at the end of the day, there is nothing I can do except put up with this new situation. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to put up with this situation. And I think... Exactly. And I, but I think that speaks um, volumes about the potential for people to turn that mindset into other areas of their resilience, surely. If they can say, well, there's nothing else I can do in this moment. There's nothing else that I can, no other way I can think about this. It is what it is. Yeah. So if we have that capacity, it's almost like a muscle that can be developed. We can then turn that muscle and dial it into another issue that could be going on in their life uh, in, in, a, in a regular way. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, no, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that really struck us, and certainly as a business, you know, we've been contemplating, and many, many people have been talking about this, that, you know, they've been thinking about how could we uh, introduce this significant IT behavioural kind of shift to enable us to transition from point A to a point B way of functioning. And many of these organisations, ours included, we set out these very long-term kind of change management programs and with a lot of hand-wringing and head-scratching and wondering, you know, how we we're going to kind of manage the complexity of the transition. And yet we moved really early and within really pretty much a week, one week, not a year and a half, we had, uh, as everybody else did, we had um, the vast majority of our workforce able to deliver services directly from home. So, um, and and we were kind of shocked. And I think it goes to the heart of the pragmatism of people. When the chips are down, um, most people kind of forego the whinging and the moaning and the, and the 
and perhaps some of that fragility about the change required of them and just get on with it and um, make it work because the pragmatism demands it. And most people step up and do a great job, I think, at, at really making that rapid shift because they recognise it's not just their self-interest, but it's the collective interest that needs to be served. I think that's a really valid point, that um, it's not their own, it's not only their self-interest, it's we have to consider the, the collective's uh, interest. Um, and, and far too few people, um, I think, do that. Do you think then, so um, I, I don't want to get into too much USA bashing, we, yeah. we find ourselves right in the, in the midst of this extraordinary time, but nobody seems to be dealing with it in a more extraordinary way than the United States. Yes. Uh, and it's led to these bizarre sort of behaviours. And now, not, not that you can tie COVID to, to George Floyd or the police brutality issue and the riots that have resulted from that. Sure. But one of the things that we... I think we should be proud about in this country is that ultimately people will still consider others in that collective thought process rather than saying, you know what, it's my individual right and therefore I'm going to make a demand on that and, uh, and function mm -hmm. that way. And again, that's one of the things that I see when I look online and I speak to other people throughout my, uh, workday or, or uh, private life. And I notice that people are still happy to make everything community. We have to for the better good. This yeah. is why we can't go camping because it hasn't hit the rural communities much. But the moment we leave our metropolitan or urban environment and go camping, we're going to touch the water taps and the barbecues and the seats and... Uh, and the public toilets and all those things and leave our traces and potentially spread the virus. And I think people understand that. And so there's that community aspect, which is, which is lovely. I uh, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's one of the things that we're most, I'm most proud of in Australia. There's certainly the modeling that the government privately had prior to making big announcements about the initial restrictions was that Australians would probably, on the basis of their best estimates, comply to about 70% um, with the request for the degree of social distancing that was being asked of them. And the modelling that saw a 70% type social distancing reality play out would have had us uh, battling with COVID-19 for probably three to four months longer before we would even have a hope of getting to the point we're at now. Yes. In reality, we had about a 92% compliance level in Australia, which is um, exceptionally high. And it's kind of matched by, you know, obviously we have an exceptional uh, case study of New Zealand uh, just across um, the Tasman. And they went even harder earlier, oh, about the same time actually, they, they went really hard uh, early as we did, but uh, they, their level of restriction and the way that they managed it was extremely tight and um, under exceptional leadership from my perspective of Jacinda Ardern who managed to find the impressive balance of uh, intense, intentional, very, very uh, almost directive 
management of the, the way people can live and move uh, in the community, coupled with this genuine, authentic commitment to kindness and compassion and connectedness as a, as, a, as a people. And I think that, you know, that is a lovely case study of how you do it perhaps at its best um, in a Western construct. And then if we look to the East, if we look at, if we look to, um, you know, obviously China and uh, where there is a, where there is a, a far greater uh, reverence and respect and possibly fear, but certainly respect for um, government and government directives, that it, they were able to quite rapidly curtail behaviour to have to get the social distancing that they required. And similarly in Singapore and a lot of the other Asian countries where it's much more naturally um, comfortable for them and they naturally think collectively, Japan will be another example, um, where it has been a whole lot easier to get the types of um, quick turnaround of what otherwise would be a runaway pandemic by having people work and think and behave and, and um, consider themselves as part of something bigger, as part of a collective. By contrast, as you alluded to, we have um, the fascinating and, and disturbing ex um, sort of social experiments playing out in some parts of Europe. And Europe's kind of interesting because we have different countries with very different kind of uh, choice of approach. And that pretty much um, tells a fascinating story. The data tells the true story, but the actual um, performance and the outcomes and the successes they're uh, experiencing pretty much reflect their, their policies and also the, the level of compliance that, that they're able to engender in their people. The US um, fiercely, um, I'm generalising wildly here, of course, there's been a huge amount of compliance there as well, but they acted so late and in such a, a, a non-consistent way and with so much politics and so much division and the politicised nature of what happened there has really set it on a very bad trajectory. And it, for me, it's deeply distressing, but nonetheless not surprising that they're in the mess they're in. Yeah, so I think they use the term uh, tight and loose to describe different types of cultures in, in terms of their... Um, willingness to adhere um, within a, a short time frame to what a government or, or whatever authority figure is telling them what to do. And we are lucky that we are quite a good deal more tight than the United States, which as a collective is, is considered quite loose and very individualistic. But even I think it's in these circumstances we see, and it's almost like the perfect storm, isn't it? When you have a certain type of culture um, and even a certain number of people and a certain number of individual states within the United States, states and territories that are given autonomy. And so you then have the federal government arguing within 50 individual states plus the, uh, you know, the Puerto Ricos and that of the, of the world where, where Costa Rica's and that that they have some influence over and then, and then each of those has their own autonomy. And then within each of those states, you've got millions of individual people. You know, and it must be very, very difficult when, you, when you're operating within that system. Sure. To ask people, it's entirely different. And you can see the difference in result from Wuhan. The Wuhan province itself has half the population of Australia and twice the population of New Zealand. And so 
but China managed to lock down 11 million people in, in sort of a weekend. And, uh, and I think that's an extraordinary thing. And so we could call them a tight community, I guess, but it requires really, really good leadership. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably where we can take that uh, discussion later on. Because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about their leadership, I, I read an article that you wrote about wolf in sheep's clothing and it's <laughs> that high, uh, high conflict personalities. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you'd share your thoughts around what, what is a high conflict personality and, and how we as leaders, managers, recruiters can be on the lookout for high conflict personalities. Yeah, sure. It, it has sort of become something within my career that's sort of stuck and become a, a niche area of um, knowledge. I, I would dare not call it expertise, but knowledge that people are very interested in because I think all of us have had the uh, wrenching experience of working with somebody or being close to somebody or having within our family sometimes somebody that is extremely intense, extremely difficult, extremely divisive, um, extremely self-interested, having very low uh, empathy or a, a natural kind of um, a, being attuned to others or caring about others. And the combination uh, of all of that... If I can and, interrupt you for a second, I, I think you're, you're almost purposely trying to segue me into a conversation about the American leadership. <laughs> maybe, maybe. No, actually, Tony, uh, that is another level again. That is, and we'll talk about how that is so next level. I'm talking about uh, regular, still employable, because they're not so bad, they're not employable, but employable individuals that tend to have very, very uh, major impacts on their peers and colleagues and often create a very powerful dynamic of conflict and unsettledness and um, an upset for a, a lot of people who work with them. The interesting thing is with high conflict personalities, they often may well be quite good at managing up. They're very good with understanding their own self-interest. So yeah. that, in fact, is the only thing I understand is the self-interest. And so if they aren't the CEO um, or they aren't the chair of the board, they often are quite good at ingratiating themselves and um, making themselves look good and they're shameless in, in the way that they might do that. Um, do they, which means um, that they often do uh, or are perceived to be relatively solid performers and or very kind of impressive in the moment. Yeah, and uh, my experience as well is they, they are pretty good task people so that you if you know they they do get the numbers they 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 um you know they make the sales they know the policies backwards they they're good with the books they're just horrendous with the people but when when you when somebody makes a complaint that the the high conflict personalities supervisor will look back and go no they're ticking all the boxes because you know their results are strong. They're they're selling more, or they're reading more, or they're they're doing more. They're doing everything we ask of them. So it, it becomes a a very dangerous juxtaposition between their ability to do the task and the job, yes, and their ability to manage anyone else near them in the job. Yeah, I think that 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 certainly can happen. The other thing is that there often is. Um, 
a questionable morality to some of these folk and they will often overclaim that it's not surprising when you find that they may push the truth a bit, um, bend the truth, sometimes blatantly lie about their performance, their data in sales teams. They often claim other people's glories. They, um, uh, you know, so there's, there's a whole kind of um, unpleasantness about how they often achieve those outcomes that you talk about. And they usually have um, a major imp impact on those that certainly report to them or, or uh, in their immediate uh, inner world that help them to achieve the kind of outcomes that you're talking about. So it's not without its costs and consequences. And I think that that's the part that has fascinated me through my time is uh, in, in sort of working with organisations and particularly focusing on the psychological journey of work and, and behavioural kind of aspects of work, that these particular individuals are relatively few in number but are profound in the impacts and the footprint that they leave behind in organisations that they tend to work in. And uh, when they're at their worst, they um, can be quite uh, devastating, really, on this, the sorts of, of impacts that they can have on their peers and colleagues. If you're interested, I've just got some research here that I, I sometimes quote when I'm talking about this what's called toxic or incivil behaviour and the impact it has on others. The um, research by these two particular researchers, um, they're called Prath and Pearson, they have done this research over a number of years and they find slightly different percentages, but this would be a bit of an idea. About 50% or 48% of work effort is reduced when you work with these um, particular individuals. 47% um, of the time people avoid being at work. 38% of the time, so we're talking about nearly half on both of those. 38% uh, reduction in work quality. 68%, so over two-thirds, reduced performance. Uh, nearly 80% reduced organisational commitment, so people disengage from the workplace, and 80% of the time worrying about work. So that's the kind of impact that they can have on those working with them, and these are probably reasonably extreme examples. But nonetheless, even if you dialed that back by 20%, 50%, it's still a, an unacceptable impact and consequence for those working with these high-conflict individuals? Well, none of those statistics an organisation would want to hear. No. Even if, you, even if you dialed those back by 50%, if you came to my organisation and you said, you know, 25% uh, of, of uh, lack of productivity, lack of morale, um, increase in stress, not wanting to uh, attend at work or worrying about... Even if you said 20%, I'd be going, whoa, because 20% is massive on the bottom line. Absolutely. And it's usually when, um, it's usually when these individuals have been in an organisation for a period of time that the dots start to get joined up. Um, as I say, they're quite often quite good at managing up, so they, they have quite long honeymoon periods because they're often articulate, they're often charismatic, they're often compelling, they're certainly memorable, they're confident enough to go and represent the organisation early in the recruitment process. Uh, they can be seen quite quickly to be a really can-do, uh, confident, reliable uh, person to have in the team. But it's only when the quieter folk that they work with 
start to uh, disappear. Many of them just leave passively because they're just too dominating. And it's only when you start to see the the fallout of some of those statistics that I I, um, shared a moment ago that HR departments and fellow colleagues and others start to go, hang on a minute, what are we dealing with here? And most people at peer level will have experienced uh, in peer meetings a heightened competitiveness and often very... um, sort of unfathomable and confusing behaviour that uh, they start to see from these individuals as they relentlessly pursue whatever their ambitions may be. So is it what's the likelihood that a person with um, a, a HCP personality, I mean, obviously I've doubled up like sure. ATM machine, um, a, a HC, so high-conflict personality, what's the, yes. what's the likelihood that that person can actually make it up into high management uh, near sort of business partner level? Look, I would have said probably some time back, let's go back one generation, I think that the qualities of an ultra-driven um, results at all costs uh, type of individual who just bashed and crashed their way through to get whatever the outcome was that they were seeking as long as that was aligned with what the organisation was seeking, they effectively became untouchable. And organisations tolerated uh, a disproportionate and and perhaps today, in today's sense, and from an IGNS perspective, an outrageous level of, of consequence from these individuals working in that way. And if you think about that ultra-charismatic but bombastic uh, barrister who wins, you know, a very, very high proportion of the cases, is confident enough and compelling enough in um, in the courtroom to pretty much uh, dominate their way, and I use that word intentionally, dominate the, the results that they get in court, they effectively become pretty much untouchable. So if there's questions about sexual impropriety or um, them dominating others or people feeling uncomfortable working with them or whatever else, you can imagine the managing partners who are all um, uh, directly experiencing uh, wealth uh, creation and kind of a whole lot of positive um, self-interested kind of reasons why this person's good to have around. They will oversee and overlook and pay off. And, and, and yeah, this is, this is kind of the, the history of, of maybe, uh, as I say, a generation ago in business. Today, I think that it's different. I think that the... Qualities that people are recruited for, the types of behaviour that are accepted, the legislative and, and, and regulatory environment that people are recruited into is so vastly different that the stick, if you, if you allow these people to cause untold damage to others, the, the cost and consequence of the business through um, all sorts of penalties and, and uh, you know, various kind of... Um, sort of negative uh, press or, or, or it may be risk to reputation or whatever it may be, that all of those things that are impacting the risk profile of the organisation may become so intolerable that they will have to act and, and, and get rid of these people. And also I noticed they're not getting into the most senior positions as much as they once used to because they aren't a well-rounded unit. They often are very strong on that they're very driven in the performance but they don't do the behavioural and the empathic. And if you think about the sorts of people that they employ into chief commissioners of police type roles these days um, yeah. and uh, and other senior roles in government, 
there is a very strong skewing of balance toward um, what has traditionally been afforded to um, the sort of more feminine attributes of leadership. And, and I see that trajectory as a heck of a long way to play out fully. And we notice that um, without, we'll, we'll maybe get onto the, some global politics a little bit ever so briefly, not that I'm any expert on it, but some of my observations about some of the shifts there. So these high conflict individuals, um, in summary, were around a lot more before in elevated and senior roles. They're still around in, in areas where, they're, um, where the benefits outweigh the costs, but today the costs are measured quite differently to the way that they once might have been. And, um, and I am noticing more and more that these people are getting caught up with a lot more quickly. It seems to me, I mean, one of the things that's fascinated me forever, and I'll throw a theory that I have at you, that we as a culture and a society, we evolve incredibly quickly. Mm -hmm. But as a thinking creature, we evolve slightly slower. But as an emotional creature, we evolve terribly slowly. And so... Yeah, and so I find it quite um, amusing because if we consider that the culture is asking all of these things to change, and like you said, at one generation ago, but in that one generation, you're going to have people fight that change emotionally. I don't mm. want to be a different person. I don't, mm. and it, because mm. it's a shift in, I mean, a tremendous shift in values. And, and I think that this plays out when you see, you know, the, the whole honour versus dignity culture thing. Yes. Where once upon a time, if I was affronted by somebody, then I would simply confront them and I would say, how dare you? Do you want to step outside? And it's that look after my honour. I slap you with a glove and we go and do, uh, we duel at 20 paces. And nowadays we're, we're shifting to a more dignity culture that says, I'm, I'm not going to take the law into my own hands. I'm above that. I'm going to pass it on to a, uh, an authority and I'm going to ask them to deal with the bullying or the illegality of what I'm receiving. And then, um, and I'm not going to lower myself to that level, but there's this tremendous clash in cultures where, you can even describe that to someone and have them completely say, if you can't, like I did, only today on Facebook, <laughs> that we won't go there, but somebody said, oh, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen, having been quite rude. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's a fascinating little byplay that's taking place where we're kind of asking people to become better and they're holding on to those traditional values, those man values that say, I sort things out myself. We keep it in-house. What's between you and me, I keep in-house, and through the strength of my own will and my own determination, I will deal with you. But I'm certainly Mm. not going to say, excuse me, um, but your behaviour doesn't suit me and my new understanding of self. And... I'm now going to go to management or somewhere like that. And I think there's this unbelievable clash that's happened, as you said, in one culture. And so we've got these people still hanging on. 
So no, um, I, think that's, I think that's very, um, I think that's a, you, you, you claimed it as a theory, but I think that there's a heck of a lot to it because if we think in terms of generational spaces, if you think back three generations, which isn't very long ago in the scheme of our evolution as a species, everything moved at the speed of a plough. Nothing moved faster than a horse and a plough. You know, yeah. really, that was kind of the pace of life. And so yeah. our great-grandparents, or maybe great-great, but certainly um, not almost within, you know, living memory of our parents, there was a time where the pace of life was very much more, um, uh, just a whole lot slower. And you've heard those amazing statistics about how a six-year-old today has had more stimulation and imagery and experienced more, um, uh, just experienced more uh, stimulation in total than their uh, grandparents, not their great-grandparents, than their grandparents did in the entire lifetime. Yeah. And I think that, that that quickening of pace and the fact that even now we know with email exchanges, there's sort of an impatience if, if, uh, if or people can experience an impatience if they don't get a reply to their email within sometimes seconds. Whereas, yeah. you know, it, and again, it's only a handful of generations ago that you wrote a letter, you sent it, um, it took, you know, uh, and if you think back to, if we stay with the US for a moment, the back when, um, you know, when letters were, were shared between the two coasts, even using the Pony Express and the, and the rapidly, the rapid, which was considered blisteringly fast at the time, it was like three days one way, three days the other, with these, you know, people who just handed on, uh, like Chinese whispers, you know, this parcel of, of mail between uh, the West Coast and the East Coast. And that was as fast as you could possibly imagine. And, of course, other, other letters were taken by ships with sort of six to 12 weeks kind of between, you know, port and port um, for those letters to arrive. And then they'd reply and it would take another 12 weeks. So the actual, um, that as a reality compared to the blisteringly fast, and we now count it in, in um, fractions of seconds that we are now breaking sort of our timelines down to, nanoseconds and, and smaller, that we are expecting information to be shared and for information to be valid. So I think that as uh, having a, a mammalian brain that's been evolving that whole time and a reptilian brain sitting under it, which is a lot more kind of stable and primal, I think that there is a deep struggle with the speed with which we have evolved as a species, fundamentally, physiologically, um, compared with what's required of us cognitively and emotionally, to your point. And if you think also about some of the deeper some of those um, aspects that are slower and less uh, quick to evolve, they often are rooted in much more fundamental reptilian parts of our brain rather than the higher cortical parts of our brain. And, uh, and I think it is this kind of dissonance and disconnect and struggle that we feel variously as a, as a species that makes um, for or sets a context for why so many things perhaps do arise as issues and struggles and problems in our various societies. So um, I don't think you're far off the mark, Tony, with that kind of observation, but I think there's quite a lot of evidence from a, an evolutionary perspective and from a sociological perspective that can help us understand why we um, have evolved so much so quickly but still have our... Um, moments of deep struggle and and perhaps under pressure we revert to a much more primal kind of way of thinking and behaving and that's sort of the stuff you were talking about a moment ago.
Yeah, well, I think that it's it's uh, interesting to me that, and I say this in my classes, that you can be an utter genius, but when when things go bad, if the bank wants to foreclose on your mortgage, you've got fight or flight. There's, you know, it's this sort of thing that happens that goes, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many letters you've got after your name. And I don't care where you've been, what you know. I don't care what your name is. You've got fight or flight like anyone's got fight or flight yeah, under that. And so we tend to be very, very unsophisticated when the ship hits the sand. Very true. And I think there's been a lot of research and we understand what happens when we have that absolute surge of adrenaline and the, um, that fight flight response that you're um, alluding to that flood of hormones, a shutting down of your cortex. Like we know that the cortex literally shuts down. And if you're scanning somebody who's in that deep fight and flight mode, there are parts of the brain that are kind of alive and on fire, but they're the much more primal survival parts of the brain, not the parts that sort of um, can do complex, you know, calculus and, and, and some of those really high cortical type functions. So that sort of amygdala response or that, that very primal response is well understood. And, and I think we know that, and, and you know this because you know a heck of a lot about more than I do, around anger and that, that white rage part where you basically are dealing with somebody who is impossible to reason with in that moment. And that's why you you know better than anybody that that is not how you deal with them um, in that moment. You don't appeal to their higher cortical. You have to find other ways to circuit break that, that really um, intense dynamic uh, in the moment. Yeah, and I think circuit breaks a great way of, um, I think it's a great metaphor to use because if we're viewing, if somebody's viewing something as a threat and we come in with that secondary threat by saying something like, you know, stop behaving like that, well, you just become an additional threat. Why would I leave my fight or flight? Why would I ask my amygdala to, to think differently and uh, allow my cortex to be involved in the situation when you've clearly just introduced a secondary threat and shown me that I need to stay in that fight or flight moment? And I quite often will, um, I'll, I'll use the word counsel, but I don't mean it in the professional sense. People who get into arguments about, or they'll, they'll tell me stories about arguments they have in the car, where, for example, uh, the, the, uh, just, just as an example, a husband's driving along, impatient with the traffic, let's fly a few expletives, and the wife tells him, why do you always get angry in the car? Calm down. And so what I say to them that they don't realise in that moment is that they're feeling a threat. The threat is, I've got to be somewhere on time, and these people in front of me and the cars around me that I, that I feel are jostling me. And the more I, the more fight or flight I enter into, the more hemmed in and jostled I feel. And so I'm really operating in this terribly fight or flight moment. And then you come up as the closest member of that threatening pack and say, calm down. You become an additional threat. There's not a hope in hell that I'm going to actually just go, oh yeah, good point. I, I think I'll just, <laughs> thanks for sharing. I guess I'll just calm down. So, uh, yeah, we really, but what's fascinating to me, mate, about this is, and, and you just alluded to it, the cultural shift in this means that I could get this fight or flight when my internet is slow and it's and, and an image is not loading, you know, it's loading like the old dial-up one line at a time. 
Yes. And suddenly, because I'm, I'm culturally, I'm used to that instantaneous information, instant gratification, instant stimulation, then I feel a, a, um, a very sort of um, old world, I feel a very ancient response welling up in me about this incredibly new technology. And I think that's where the disconnect is. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I think, you know, today also we have um, a far higher standard of expectation of what um, behaviourally and from a values perspective we display. And and I think, you know, that we do expect a lot more um, of each other and of ourselves. And uh, I think that that, for, for many people, um, is quite a stretch. For some, it's an, an excessive stretch. For some, it's like the rubber band, it just stretches too far and it snaps. And I think I do have a, I do wonder whether what they're calling the epidemic we are having in our mental health is a reflection of this in some regard. I know it's a much more complex um, series of, of dynamics and drivers that are giving rise to the mental health epidemic that we're experiencing and even what people's tolerance levels are compared to the remarkable, you know, and, and uh, the case studies of resilience of, you know, of your grandparents and my grandparents and what they put up with and, and lived with it. And, and how they kind of battled on um, compared to what is perceived as a fragility and a, and a kind of a weakness um, in, in many of, of, of us now dealing with um, what they would perceive as being the most minor of, of life burdens. So there's a, it's complex. I'm not pretending it isn't. But I do think that that um, over being overstretched and, and too much being expected of us physiologically, emotionally, hormonally, whatever, um, that, that, that there is a dissonance and a disconnect in some regard and we have kind of worked out collectively how we can reset the right kind of pace. And for me, one of the most fascinating things about COVID-19, perhaps one of the greatest positives for me, is it did enforce some form of deeper reflection and some form of reset for people and I know personally that there are some things I'm going to hang on to and preserve out of this chapter of time in our lives that's yet to fully play out. That I, I, there are some things that I have committed to myself I will not go back to because I can see that it was not um, serving me well, not serving my family well. And so I think this un planned reset button that's sort of come from from Wuhan province in China um, is in some regards uh, fascinatingly for me quite welcome in, in, in some selfish regards. Um, so, yeah, it, it is really interesting. The other comment I'd briefly make on that is I think that for our children, and I have um, young adult children, and for them to actually, who have, they have been, I've, you know, one particular um, child who's very, very deeply attuned to the uh, the world that we live in and the the good and the bad and and the long list of bad and their sense of powerlessness to some degree and and their disappointment and fear for the future. I think the thing about COVID and even just that quick um, and so perhaps even very superficial kind of reset of our environmental reality and to see clear skies over Beijing and, and, uh, and Singapore and, and Hong Kong and to see, um, you know, wild, wild animals kind of be more naturally at habitat in local parks and all sorts of things has, has given 
young people a, um, a sense that, oh my goodness, you know, they're but for the grace of a tiny, in a relative sense, tiny adjustment of behaviour and some sort of sharing of the planet. Look what happens and how, how quickly it happens. So, yeah, for me, there's been a number of really positive things that um, I think will reflect upon for many years to come as being quite powerful uh, and, and perhaps giving us a sense of a different choice in the future than necessarily sliding back into our default. I think it's, um, in a way, it feels like it's wrenched us free of um, pre some of the pre-COVID assumptions. So, for example, it would have been difficult for my partner, Gina, Gina to get from her workplace the permission to work every day from home. Yeah. She did one day a week from home. To have then gone and say, I need you to trust with trust that I can do the job five days or even four days out of the week and just come in one day, I think they would have gone, oh, well, this has been a, an enforced test of that. Mm, mm. And so there's going to be, you know, there's going to be, I'll make a small prediction here that we're going to find a lot of empty office space in the, in the CBD yeah. because a lot of uh, companies are going to say, I notice you function really, really well from home. We don't need you to come into the office anymore. We can do a lot of this online. You're doing it as long as you can connect to our intranet or our server or whatever's going on. And as long as you can still dial into Zoom or Skype meetings or whatever, then we're good with you staying there. So we're going to see, I think, a, but it's been a, a, an enforced shift. And I think she's probably one of a group maybe of thousands of people that no longer have to ride public transport or drive their motor vehicles into a central location to do work. And, and Yeah, it's a really, really interesting Point, and I suspect it's in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, actually. Yeah. And certainly for, for me, uh, I found the productivity increase is massive. Um, just even if you just take the, you know, let's just call it an hour and a half, two hours commuting each day. Yeah. The, uh, the many, many other kind of incidental uh, things that happen in, in, a, in a work day, in a busy office environment that do um, help balance the whole uh, work experience. So I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should be just productivity machines, but I tell you what, I have been really, really surprised at how much um, more effective and productive I've been working from home and getting kind of set up properly too, that helps enormously, but working from home. And, and I don't ever imagine I'll work a five day week again, ever. Isn't that, and I, and I think if you had said that too, if, if you had said that to me in in November... Yeah, I agree. I'd have gone, what? And I think <laughs> if you'd said it to your colleagues, they'd have gone, what? So <laughs> it's a fascinating journey, but it's been, it's been this devastating mic drop effect. Boom, let's see how the world goes now. And, <laughs> and it's, just, it's just like, you know, it's a magic wand. And as you said, with the climate, it's, it's made this impact, this this sudden impact, like a like a, a meteor hitting the earth, is something that's occurred that's changed the nature. And people are talking about the new norm, and I and I get why they're using those phrases. And you know, people love those sort of bumper sticker um, yes. idea. And I'm not a fan of bumper sticker mentality. I find it too flippant. But it is interesting. It will be interesting to see how this unfolds 
over time and how, so what I'm fascinated in and where I was leading with this is how it's going to affect your company and the understanding of resilience long time. Yeah. Yeah. Because we may not, we may just be gradually have, well, not gradually, may have shifted the needle from less office-based trauma and stress and uh, to more stress of a more uh, home-based nature. And so it's a fascinating thing to think that such changes, but it'll be interesting from your perspective, how that affects people's coping mechanisms. It'll be, I think we'll see some weird and wonderful things emerge. I mean, we are human after all, and weird and wonderful seems to be uh, uh, two sort of adjectives that I'd be happy to d- use to describe us on a regular basis. <laughs> That's true. Actually, we've done some uh, some workplace mediations um, virtually in the last little while, and there's been it's not brand new thinking uh, the, the the concept of doing uh, conflict resolution via um, uh, in a virtual or teleconference context is not new to the COVID era, but there's been kind of a um, uh, perhaps a cautious reluctance or a cynicism about how it could, might work. But interestingly, where we have done it um, with, with, with parties, one of the things that's really, really different is that when you've got party A in their home and party B in their home and you've got the mediators, you know, obviously working from where they're working, the thing that's massively different about the dynamic before you even um, have the two parties open their mouths is that they both feel psychologically safe in their homes. Yeah. Which gives rise to a very different conversation than if you bring them into a common space where they're already feeling daunted, threatened, overwhelmed, um, whatever it may be, that gave usually is part of what gave rise to their um, conflict in the first place. Yeah. But very interesting to see when people are feeling psychologically safe how they can be so much more cortical and and, and uh, constructive about yeah. finding a, a, a way forward. Now, sure, it gets tested when they come back together, but nonetheless, I think it gives them a much um, clearer heads and, and, and less of an emotional kind of wrenching journey that sometimes mediations can be to in, in order to get to a landing place that means that they, you know, at least can have a degree of optimism about um, finding a new way forward with their working relationship. So that, that's kind of an example of something interesting that is just there's all these fascinating uh, kind of little um, case studies of thought and experiment that are happening right now because we're forced to trial things differently. But some of this stuff, some of these experiments, I think we will choose to adopt um, permanently and, and maybe, um, you know, maybe something like that virtual conflict resolution may have a far bigger place in the future than was the case in the past. Yeah, I think that's uh, an amazing, um, an amazing thing that I hadn't considered. And I suppose that the issue is that you will have one party possibly more traumatised by having to go to an office space than another. So I, I recall when I was doing some work with schools and if they had to organise a meeting with a parent, if it was a bullying issue and there were two families that they had to bring in to talk about what was going yeah. on and they, you know, they had to have a little bit of this sort of um, reconstructive sort of uh, conversation. But what you, if you had one member of one family who just hated school, hated turning up, hated teachers, hated the whole schooling environment, had a terrible time at school, then they turn up with an entirely different attitude than the other person who might have loved school. So 
regardless of who's right or wrong or apparently so or pretends to be so in the mediation, the fact that you're bringing one person who's traumatised into an environment that traumatised them and another person who's not traumatised by that environment at all, you are automatically feeding into uh, a bad dynamic. And so yeah, I think yeah. that having them both very settled is, is exactly as you describe, at least they're now in a good headspace where they're relying less and less on the limbic system, that emotional subconscious, less and less on primitive behaviours and can rely more on their um, sort of prefrontal cortex and cortical response. But also that then sets a better footing for them to go into subsequent meetings. Yeah. Set a little bit of goodwill almost. If I can, if I can have a meeting with you where because I'm operating out of my um, prefrontal cortex, I'm more happy to give you some charity. I'm more happy to give you some quarter. And then you, you'll feel a bit of appreciation for that and you'll respond in kind. We're creating a bit of goodwill between us because neither of us feels that trauma. So I think there's yeah. some real strength to be gained by that. Yeah, and also power imbalances and all sorts of other things that can get in, can feed into a dynamic very powerfully in a conflict resolution sense uh, tend to be mitigated somewhat by that notion of people being in the place where they feel safest. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's just interesting. Anyway, yeah, I, I, th I thought that, you know, there's that and there's a whole lot of other things that we've uh, found that have been little little kind of light bulb moments and surprises through the through this experience um, and the work that we do that has meant um, that, you know, that I suspect that it's like the genie's out of the bottle. I don't think it'll go back fully at least. And, yeah. uh, and even as we are starting to help organisations transition people back to work, that is a lot messier, a lot more complex, a lot, um, a lot more differentiated and varied than uh, it was exiting. So the exit was quite, you know, kind of nationwide, quick, give or take a week, pretty much everybody that could um, was working from home uh, quite quickly. Of course, some people can't. They had to continue working if they had frontline roles or construction roles or worked in health. But largely, um, uh, the majority of Australians were forced to um, head home. Now, some people like um, some people have never been busier, but a lot of people. I was speaking to a very good uh, friend who is kind of one of these uh, great thought leaders in business, and he's he's had a complete uh, collapse of his his training and his consulting work um, for the last uh, few months. But it's given rise for him to think, how do I use this time and invest this properly? So he's you know, he's finished his book, he's done, you know, there's all sorts of things where people are doing some really fantastic creative stuff that, um, that again, we'll see, we'll bear the fruits of down the track. Apparently in Wuhan, um, lots of the best and brightest have just been prolifically writing new software. And so there's, there's going to be this explosion of software that's going to kind of be available because people have the time to do the deep coding or whatever it is that you do when you write um, some modern software these days. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, I think that we are yet to see how that creativity explosion will um, sort of flow back into our various communities um, after this experience. Fantastic. And I suppose the only person we really have to worry about in those mediations, uh, the uh, virtual mediations, would be those high-conflict high personalities. Well, they're the ones that... They're the ones that um, it's actually interesting because when you're dealing with a really, really... 
uh, complex, high conflict individual that might be, let's say, a classic narcissist, um, and they're the most common type of high conflict uh, personality types that we tend to see in the workplace, um, and 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 probably the ones that that the profile that has enough functionality to be able to perform at, at pretty senior levels or be able to function pretty successfully overall. But they, um, in workplace mediations, um, they you tend to need a very different approach. And we, we had a lot, I've done a lot of work and, and I'm a great admirer of the work of Bill Eddy, uh, who is a US, uh, he's a, he's a, social worker, I think, originally by training. He's a, law, he's a trained lawyer and he's also uh, spent his the middle and later part of his career focusing on, on research and practice around managing high-conflict personalities. So a great kind of global uh, thought leader in this, in this particular area. And he um, ha- uh, recognises that the way that you work with high-conflict individuals, particularly the highest conflict, is you don't, as is typical in a mediation, talk about the past. So typically in a mediation or a conflict resolution process, you would talk about um, the past that gave rise to the dynamic that's actually got the people in the room today. So there would be kind of a, sometimes even, you know, a third to a half the chapter of the, the total time that you'd, running the mediation, you would spend past focused yeah. and you get people to try and reflect and understand, you know, what was going on in the dynamic between, um, between the two parties that gave rise to where they're at today. Um, with high conflict individuals, he said, don't bother, do not bother. He said, because um, it will end up becoming potentially very damaging to the other party because they will be blamed that um, the high conflict, uh, let's just call them at this moment more, narcissistically inclined, they will not take any responsibility for their failings, their shortcomings. They will see the entire reason and the entire problem being vested in the other person. So they will do um, a complete um, and often quite a a powerful annihilation of that individual um, and a complete blaming and, more importantly, no ability to reflect, no ability to empathise and no ability to learn. So, um, So, which is not great. That is not a great sort of framework to to undertake any uh so recognition and empowerment are the two most powerful things you're looking for in any conflict resolution if you've got recognition and you can empower somebody they are the two things that um you know writers like Folger and bush and others they focus on that as being the kind of the the gold standard um values that you and and, and revelations of and and some thought processes that you try and encourage in in parties in conflict but if you are extremely high conflict, that is just never going to happen. So the way that um, that Bill Eddy suggests that you work with high conflict individuals is you keep it entirely future focused and you find ways to speak to their self-interest. So you get them to put up proposals and then, and you know, and it, so you basically bargain with them, but you try to minimise um, the impact, the negative impact that they're going to have on the other individual. And the other way, if they're really truly toxic and completely out of control, is sometimes when I've done conflict resolution with very high conflict individuals, is um, I separate them and have them in different rooms, and you do what's called a shuttle mediation. Yeah. Because one, you know that the high conflict person is not going to learn at all. There's going to be no recognition, no impact no empathy, no empowerment. It, it's just going to be scorched earth on that side of things. Yeah. But you, it gives you an opportunity to frame um, their self-interest in creating a shift. So if they can see that their brand as a, as a senior manager in the organisation is being marred by the fact that they 
are beginning to get a reputation of being um, someone difficult to work with or, or a bully or whatever, whatever language might be used, that they may have enough awareness or self-awareness to go, oh, that's not a good look. And so, therefore, if you can help them see a pathway to not be that or not do that, you might have some hope. But um, largely they um, are probably the cohort of individuals that you are very, very cautious about engaging any conflict resolution uh, with at all because they can be so damaging to the other person and because they are most unlikely to genuinely learn through the process, show contrition and actually improve their behaviour in the longer term. So it raises then the question of how uh, um, they might use the term fake news <laughs> oh my lord! There, there's um so it, you know Donald Trump um for your listeners is the classic um and most dialed up version of narcissism that you could possibly ever imagine, and um, psychiatrists um, across the world um, and and people who teach mental health and people who teach personality disorders. Um, have, you know, sort of it's one of those drop the mic moments where they say, you know, it is just next, 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 next level. In fact, he has been um, largely touted as having what's called a malignant narcissism with a sociopathic, if not psychopathic overlay, which is the most dialed up version of um, personality disorder you could possibly have. Um, And it is, you know, it's DSM five. It's 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 quite diagnosable. So um, now that that's not meant to be a political statement, but that's meant to be more one of speaking about his presentation, his behaviour, and his patterns of of the way he engages with um with you know those around him are classically ultra dialed up um, narcissistic behaviour. And if you think about those those traits um, of and, and I'll just I'll just walk you through if you're interested. So this is the classic uh, combination of um, of behaviour that you would expect to see from a high-conflict individual. And if we just kind of softly hold um, Mr Trump in our minds, um, you, you might kind of get the picture. So this is this is um, not specifically about narcissism, but it talks about the classic kind of hallmarks of high-conflict behaviour. They put other people down, tick. They are unable to reflect on their own behaviour and have limited or no insight, tick. Lack empathy, tick, tick, tick. Self-absorbed, just keep ticking. Massive tick. Tick, tick, tick. Uh, Blame others. It's always someone else's problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lack remorse. Um, This is particularly for antisocial behaviours and certainly there's a complete lack of remorse for, you know, actions taken. Avoid taking responsibility for the problem or the solution so that it's not, it's you know, that that lack of responsibility has been uh, well documented. Rigid and uncompromising. Feeling entitled to things. Um, and uh, they want to know, they want to know, um, uh, you know, what's in it for them. And if they don't get what they want, they often have a tantrum or a version of an adult tantrum. Again, we've seen plenty of that. Manipulate relationships to serve their own interests. Moods, um, absolutely. Uh, the mood can swing from charming to vindictive. So you get these kind of massive kind of um, emotional uh, changes and mood changes. Manage well upwards, which makes mobilising action against them more difficult. Well, that's... Um, Interesting to consider, given if you're in that kind of role. Uh, rules apply to others, not to them. Uh, they deserve special treatment and find it difficult to accept and heal from loss and can seek vengeance in the most extreme forms. And if you think about the level of vengeance as being sought oh. against 
um, against anybody that opposes, um, certainly Obama, um, you know, so many of his adversaries of the past, he sought vengeance. Now, that is, normally you would find that people would have, they'd be ticking a cluster of those, um, some of those, or to some degree, but not kind of volume 10 plus out of 10 on pretty much um, all of those. So it's, there is no doubt that we have a very um, complex and uh, extreme version of uh, high conflict individual, um, you know, in the, as the President of the United States. And, and, and much of that and much of the impact of that has played out in um, the the situation that we're you know is live today, Tony. With um, while this podcast goes to where you know we're still at civil unrest right across America in major ways. Not all, not all of which is um, certainly not all of which is Trump's fault. It's got an deep kind of history and antecedents well before him. But that sort of notion of divisiveness, that notion of incitement, that notion of um, domination, that notion of um, uh, you know, complete lack of contrition, the complete um, need for retribution and vengeance, that whole kind of cluster of um, drivers and behaviours is not going particularly well from my, and I'm happy to kind of wear it, from my perspective, it's it's kind of a... Um, it's a bit of a train wreck um, watching how this has kind of been been playing out and continues to play out um, in the US. But from for, for your audience who might want to try and understand a little bit about high-conflict personalities, you know, I, I would say he's certainly not alone. There are plenty of other um, narcissists that have um, been around. There's, whole, there's swathes of them through history and there are many more of them sort of running um, um, countries of the world today. But um, being as close as we are to the US and, and having that um, experience that the media has and exposure that the media has provided to us, even if it's biased, um, there's enough of a pattern there that you can form your own kind of view. And I think that there's enough of a pattern through he, his behaviour as president, certainly through his career, and the way he has dealt with others through his, his, um, his business dealings and, and life that... Um, well, psychiatrists at Harvard and the like had no problem whatsoever recognising how seriously a personality disorder he is. Yeah, I suppose um, as you were listing those things off and as I'm sort of following along with you and saying tick, 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 but it does remind me of uh, King, Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il or any of the, you know, the Pol Pots and the Mao Zedongs of the world. These are... These are ultimate dictators who rule via whatever iron fist that they can muster at the time. He just seems to have a desire to be a dictator. I think the thing that's really one of the fantastic things about the American Constitution, for all of its faults and failings, is and there are enough checks and balances, even though there's been systematic kind of attempts to um, dismantle much of them and certainly the separation of um, um, state uh, with, with, with sort of state and government and, and, um, and with the various institutions that are designed to be uh, the separation of powers. But he, um, those things are helping keep him in check uh, to, a, to a degree. He actually isn't able to do anywhere near as much as he may wish to do. And I think possibly he has a deep envy of those can around the planet that are, can sort of, you know, um, in an unfettered sense, um, do whatever they hell they want to do. 
But um, it, it's, it's concerning enough. I think it's concerning enough for us trying to reconcile that kind of profile of, of, of leader in um, a democracy particularly. Less, you don't have to apologise for it if you haven't got um, uh, a democratic kind of framework. There are other frameworks of government that, that um, are more enabling of that type of um, uh, approach. But uh, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the, in the next few months as we lead up to the November election. But, um, yeah, certainly I think that the key thing I, I would want to say, again, not to, it's not about being political, but I think the impact of high-conflict individuals on those around them is my message. And I think that anybody that is witness to what has happened in the last three and a half years in the White House and in Washington and uh, to the, well, the, um, is, I think it's the CDC, the, the, you know, the, the agency that was actually responsible for preparing for and dealing with pandemics completely pretty much dismantled um, the Environmental Protection Authority, all sorts of different agencies which are about trying to regulate and manage and mitigate have been done away with and there's you know and similarly with the supreme court there's been an overt stacking of the supreme court to try and again um completely recast a lot of those protective uh, institutions uh, wrapped around the um the seats of power in in in, in the u.s but um, you know, thankfully for elections, election cycles, that um, it gives you a chance to have another bite at the cherry. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, he's only got eight years to do ultimate damage and then, uh, you know, four years minimum, eight years maximum. And uh, so let's just keep our fingers crossed. And, and, you know, I was asked by a friend, why do I even worry? And, and I just said, well, you know, we are much more global a society than we ever were because of the internet, because of the nature of travel, because of the nature of trade. Um, you know, the, we you can't just say, oh, well, that's the United States problems. They are an ally of ours in a trade sense, in a in a military sense, in a political sense on, on every front. And we can't just sit back and ignore what's going on, although they wouldn't know the name of our prime minister. But, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and probably Trump doesn't know the name of our Prime Minister, but um, we're, we're certainly by no means a, a global superpower. But we are, we must keep our eyes on international politics because it's a global thing now. Yeah. So what and, things like and we've also, I think, just finally on that, that we um, have historically, and the world, the Western world, has followed the much, not, not entirely, but followed much of the lead of the US. I think what's been perhaps a really healthy recalibration is that Australia certainly and, and many other parts of um, Western democracies um, that share similar kinds of values uh, are looking much more to the Northern Europe and looking much more to um, other leadership models than necessarily this um, uh, almost uh, unfailingly loyal kind of uh, following of the of the US and everything about the way that the US kind of uh, leads the world on, on on a number of fronts. And Trump has no doubt turned a far greater focus. It become much more nationalistic, much more inwardly looking, much more parochial in his kind of worldview, and tends to kind of therefore see externality as threatening. And and has positioned that quite powerfully with um, many many Americans to see the rest of the world variously as a threat, and that we need to kind of turn in on ourselves. 
So from our perspective in Australia, I think it's fantastic that we're looking um, to uh, other countries and other leadership styles to um, recast and rethink our alliances and um, perhaps the future direction of, of how we might, um, you know, uh, what kind of, uh, and the shaping of what kind of society we want to have for Australians uh, in the decades to come. Mm, I love it. Well, mate, we might pull the pin there. I'm sort of conscious of your time. You've got another meeting coming up. Yes. I did want to uh, say it's just always a massive pleasure to be able to chat with you and uh, you're a wealth of knowledge and every time, I think every time we're face-to-face -face or even on the phone, I walk away going, you know, I've learned something here. So uh, thanks very much. I really appreciate your time. It's a and pleasure, Tony. And likewise, I, we, we always have a good old chat about things. Yeah. And I hope we didn't drift too far into... Um, no territories that um that your listeners um would prefer we didn't but um i'm more than happy for you to share I'll, I'll give you a couple of bits and pieces that if you want to share with your um your customers in relation to high conflict individuals or a couple of articles and things um, i'm very happy for you to share those with them and um and help them to better understand these these uh individuals that they may be living um or maybe in their work worlds or in their future work worlds, where they can, hang on a minute, I remember something about that, because you do need a different uh, kit bag and toolkit to be able to deal with them, because if you keep doing what you've always done, you're going to keep getting what you always got. And unfortunately, with uh, high-conflict individuals, it's it's um, often at far too great a personal toll on, on the person trying to make all of the dual or heavy lifting. So um, good luck, Tony, and I and, um, hope that... Um, I hope that your um, audience uh, got something out of today. I, I would, I would think that uh, there'd be something wrong if they didn't, mate. And thanks again for joining me. Pleasure. Enjoy your next meeting. I'll talk to you again soon. You take care. Bye now. Good night. Bye.